Thank you, Pastor Jeremy. And uh, thank you, Brent. Uh, man, Brent, I, I love your passion for Operation Christmas Child. It is contagious, church. I want us to all get a part of that. That's pretty cool. And I want to thank you guys. Um, you know, the past four Sundays, I've been off from preaching here at this pulpit. And I've been just so refreshed and encouraged by the, the men who stepped in here in my absence. And um, big shout out to, to the four of them, Pastor Jeremy, Joshua Suh, Josh Phillips, and Carrie Weiss. Uh, man, they, they, they fed us well the last month, haven't they, church, for those who are here? Man, yeah. And so um, I need a break from time to time like that from, from preaching. Preaching is a, is a, it's a laborious work. And so I just hope that we all understand how important it is to have seasons of rest, but also understand the importance of using our gifts. Because one of the reasons I try to step away from the pulpit from time to time is not just to give me a break, but also so you guys can hear a new voice. Because there are ways that others are going to be preaching that are unique from the ways that I might preach. You might see some, some stylistic similarities but at the end of the day, they have their own unique preaching voice, and, and you're learning differently because they're exercising their spiritual gift, and God is using them in their unique gifting. And I say that because all of you who have put your faith in Jesus have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you have a spiritual gift. And the way God wants you to exercise that gift is unique to you with your personality and your experience and your life circumstances. And others will be blessed as you use your gifts to build up the body of Christ. You with me on this, church? All right, so just as we are encouraged by others, you guys have your own gifts as well and different gifts and similar ones. Let's use them to be a blessing to one another because no one, two, three, or four people are meant to lead the church in and of themselves, but all of us collectively are meant to build one another up with our gifts. So just grateful for that. And I also want you guys to know during this time off, I've been um, actually, one of the reasons I took off the month was to work on something else that I've been doing is that's is writing a book um, on the resurrection of Jesus. And I, I just welcome your prayers for that as I'm, I'm about a week and a half past my deadline. And so I am that student at school who's asking for an extension uh, with, my, with my editor, the publisher. So uh, definitely welcome your prayers for that. As Pastor Jeremy mentioned, we are getting back into our series called Doctrine That Dances from the Book of Romans. Now, we borrowed that title, Doctrine That Dances, from a book written by uh, a guy named um, uh, Robert Smith, and he's a pastor, a preacher, and a theologian. And the premise of his book is ultimately that, that good preaching comes from good theology, and good theology gets us on the move. You with me on that? And so what our prayer has been is that you would see the teaching, the doctrine, the theology of, of Romans, the book of Romans, the, the understanding of who God is. And that that would be the kind of thing that gets you moving, that gets you uh, just eager to live for Jesus. And so it's inspiring. It's, 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 it's catapults you forward. And so it's just like when, you, when you're at a dance, if you're at a, at a wedding or you're at a New Year's party or at a birthday party, and that one song comes on, and you know that song for you, and you hear the melody of that song, and right away it gets you moving. You know what I mean? Don't pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. I've seen a lot of you all at parties, all right? I know what that song is. It's that salsa song, that bachata, or it could be that hip-hop, or that old-school R&B. But the moment you hear that melody, you're ready to dance. Our prayer is that our belief in God, our understanding of who he is, is like that melody for your soul, church. You with me, church? 
Uh, it's that kind of melody that gets you moving, saying, God, I, I've got to live for you. I've got to tell people about you. I've got to represent you wherever I'm at. And so that's why we titled this series, Doctrine That Dances. And that's why I'm excited to unpack it with you uh, this morning. Before I go any further, I think it's important for me to remind all of us what sermons are and what sermons are not. A sermon is not a monologue, right, church? It is a dialogue, which means I need to hear you all, okay? I need to know that you're following with me, that you're understanding, that you're tracking with what God is saying by the way you interact with me. You all with me on that? Good. All right, cool. My family and I, we love watching nature documentaries. And there was a particular Netflix documentary called Our Planet. You you ever seen that one? Our planet just, it, it showcases different aspects of, of, the, of the world and different creatures and animals. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But in the opening episode, there is something that takes place that, that alarmed us. It, it kind of startled us as a family. It was the story about these flamingos. Flamingos that were going to the southern part of, of Africa. Not quite, I, I think it might have been actually South Africa. But they were going there, they were migrating there, and they had laid eggs, and their baby chick flamingos had begun to hatch. Now, they hatched in these what are known as salt plains, salt flats. And upon hatching, these baby flamingos needed to walk with their parents and the adult flamingos to fresh water to begin to drink and get nourished by the various bacteria that's in those waters. Now, the problem is these babies don't fly yet. So they got to walk. So they're walking behind. And in this documentary, it's so cute. You see these adult flamingos and these little furry babies just walking behind them with their long, thin legs. But there was one particular flamingo that the, the, the narrator pointed out. And this little flamingo, as it walked, began to have a salt buildup from the, the, the surface build up on its ankles. And what it did was it began to slow down this baby flamingo. But then the baby flamingo began to continue to walk, and the salt continued to build up. And slowly, before you knew it, the the flamingo slowed down so much that it distanced from the pack. It became tired by the weight of the the salt buildup. And then finally, the flamingo fell over. And then the scene cut. And you're like, what happened to the flamingo, right? Everybody's like, tell me the videographer went there and helped the flamingo. And so apparently what actually happened is on Netflix, this kind of went viral. I mean, sorry, on Twitter, it went viral. And people were like, what happened to the flamingo? And some are like, man, I'm so distraught. I can't go on to watch episode two. I'm just, I'm worn out here. Because what's implied is that little flamingo died. It died. And so what we just witnessed was its slow death. But when we look at this flamingo and we compare it to what we see in our own daily lives, there's actually something quite similar that happens to most of us. A lot of us feel very much like this flamingo, weighed down by various things. In particular, we oftentimes feel weighed down by the commands of God. Sometimes it's the commands of God that we feel like, God, I'm I'm trying to obey you, I'm trying to follow, and you feel like you're just walking, and it's becoming heavier and heavier and heavier. And like this flamingo, you feel like you're suffering a slow death. And maybe you've fallen over and saying, God, I just can't keep up with the laws. I can't keep up with the commands. They're too much of a weight upon me. You see, what happens is there are two extremes when we see God's law. 
And we need, to, we need to avoid both of them. On the one extreme, there are some who say, Jesus died and freed us from the law. Therefore, we can go ahead and do whatever we want. Because, you know, at the end of the day, God's going to forgive us. And so, in fact, they go to the extreme saying, in fact, the more I sin, the more God shows grace. So my sinning actually makes God look great. So let's keep sinning. That's called license. That, that is an extreme. But on this other extreme, on this far side, is what we want to call legalism. Legalism is saying, yes, I've been saved by God's grace, but I've got to keep obeying these laws. I've got to keep following hard after them, because if I don't, God may not be okay with me anymore. I need to, in a sense, earn God's affection or his approval or his love i got to maintain a certain persona in front of others. And so I get stuck under this law, and I want to address the people in this camp today. See, Romans 6 speaks to those on the other extreme, and, and Paul's like, look, if you love God and you're changed by his grace, his grace will change you, and so you won't abuse his grace. But on the other hand, for those who live under the burden of the law, you need to understand what it means to be free. You need to understand what it means to, yes, obey God, but not do so begrudgingly, or what it means to obey God, but not in order to gain his affection. The law has a binding way on our lives, and those two extremes are dangerous. I know in my own life, I tend to fall on the extreme of legalism, where I feel like I've got to do more to make sure I'm okay with God. And when I fail, I start wondering, God, are you, are you okay with me still? Even though I know I've been saved by grace, but I, I start feeling i got to do to be accepted. If that's where you're at today, if you find yourself with the salt buildup of the law around your ankles, and it's become so hard and you can no longer keep pace, if you feel like you're about to fall over, maybe you already have, and you're just saying, I give up, I can't do this anymore, God. Today I want you to know what it means to be free, to be truly set free by Jesus. Because where the law restricts with chains, grace will catapult you with love. This is the message that we want to hear today. So if you can, would you join me in the book of Romans chapter 7? Romans chapter 7, that's towards the end of your Bible. Romans chapter 7, we're going to look at the first six verses of this and would you stand to your feet when you get me get there and for those watching online um, I want you to join me standing on your feet as a way for us to just show reverence to God's word as we read it here publicly Romans chapter 7 verse 1 says or do you not know brothers for I am speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Here's an illustration. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And then he drives it home in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, 
You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, can you say, but now? But now we are released. Can you say released? Released. We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. This is God's word. You may be seated, church. So today we're talking about the law and our relationship with the law. Living under the law perfectly is an impossible weight to carry. You and I just can't do it. But the problem is not the law. Actually, the Bible teaches that the law of God is a good thing because by the law, we see God's standard. We see God's directives and what God wants us to do. But the problem with the law is that it does something in us who is the problem that brings about some really difficult consequences. Take, for instance, we, first of all, can't perfectly keep the law. You and I are not perfect people. We are sinful people. And sin is not just a matter of things we do or the things we say, but it's who we are. The world will teach us that humanity is basically good. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says, actually, basically, we're, we're pretty wretched. We are sinful people. And because of that, we cannot obey God's law perfectly. So that's a problem. The other problem is the law, not only can we not obey it, but the law actually makes us not want to obey it. And what it does is it provokes us. When the speed limit on the highway says 55 miles per hour, how much do you drive? 65. Again, another honest person in the room, all right? This is what happens. When we see a standard, it's in our flesh nature to say, how far do I got to go before I break it? Or how much can I break it before I really get in trouble? The law cannot be followed perfectly. And even worse, it actually makes us want to sin. And so this is our problem. But then the very sin we commit when we break the law does this. And this is the worst thing of all. It condemns us. Now you're guilty of breaking the law of God. I'm guilty of having transgressed his commands. And then what flows from that is guilt and shame. And in our flesh, what many of us try to do at that point is saying, I just got to do better. And so we try to work harder and harder to fall and to fall. And we're there with that salt buildup and saying, God, what do I do? That's the person that Paul is speaking to in this passage. He wants us to understand that earning God's approval is a bill you can't pay, church. It is too costly for you. It's like your mortgage, your school loan, and your car note all coming due on the same day every single day. It's a bill you can't pay. That's why he says here, 
in verse 1, when we're under the law, we're in trouble. But he says this, or do you know, brothers and sisters, that's a collective word there in the original Greek, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So Paul said, hey, I got great news for you. Yes, the law is a burden and a weight to carry, to try to follow. But the good news is this. It only has jurisdiction over you so long as you're alive. Well, you and I are like, well, that's not good news. What good is that for me now? I mean, just think about it. Dead people are not subjugated to the laws of the land. Dead people don't pay taxes. And there are other laws in our government. Now, they're subjected to the laws of nature, but not to the laws of the land. Which is then to say, death has freed them from the law. And so Paul's like, I have good news for you. You can be freed from the law. The only problem is you have to die. We're saying, well, that's good news, but that's actually not really good news. But then he goes on to parallel and make an illustration. He says, you know, let, let me make this clear for you because I want you to know what it means to be free. So let me explain to you how death frees you from a law. And so he gives this illustration in verse 2. He says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Basically, he makes a comparison here. He says, I want you to understand that just like in the illustration of marriage is also true with our relationship with the law. In marriage, when a husband and wife are married, there becomes a covenant, and that covenant should be broken only by death. But once death happens, that person is now free to marry another. So Paul's like, so in the same way, the law over you can be broken only by death. That's where the law no longer has jurisdiction. I mean, just think about it. Our governor has jurisdiction over the state of Illinois, but he has no authority in Indiana. He's, his, his word means nothing in Wisconsin. Law has no jurisdiction over the dead. And marriage is an example of how death can break the law. Now, I want to drive home this point here in verse 4 in just a moment. But before I get into that, I feel the need to, 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 to park here for a moment. Because what Paul is doing here, he's, he's giving an illustration of marriage to, to talk about our relationship with the law, and then he moves on. But in our day and age, like, this is a heavy teaching he just dropped about marriage. It's like, yo, you just said a lot here. And there are things that are assumed in his day and age that are not assumed in ours. So here's what I'm going to do for you all. I'm going to take just a, a pause for just a moment, and I'm going to unpack in five points what he just taught about marriage for us to then better understand this illustration. You with me here? Sound good? All right, good, good, good. So the first thing he says here about marriage is he wants us to understand marriage is a covenant. That's why it only can be broken by death. It is a covenant, which means it is more than just saying, hey, you want to do this? Cool, we're we're married now. Marriage is a promise that happens between two people, a man and a woman, that is, is sealed by God. We, we, when we become married, we are making a, a decision, and in God's sight, it is sealed by his covenant, which is then to say that we cannot determine in our heart saying, this person is my, my wife in my heart, or my husband in my heart. God's like, that's not a covenant. 
A marriage covenant, that promise that takes place before God, is what God says. That's, that's what, where marriage happens. So marriage is more than just a piece of paper, as some would say. You ever heard that? Marriage is just a piece of paper. Well, to that we'd say, well, so is that $100 bill in your pocket. So is that diploma for your master's degree. So is that deed to your house. These are all pieces of paper. But what these pieces of paper do is they convey the value of the thing they represent, church. The pieces of paper in and of themselves don't have value, but the things they represent do. And so what God is saying is in my economy, the marriage covenant is sealed before me and it is symbolized by a piece of paper, a marriage license, but that license shows the value that I have established in the covenant. And in that covenant then, things that are meant for marriage can be enjoyed in the safety and security of the covenant. Among those things are sexual intimacy. God has designed sexual intimacy for the marriage covenant. Outside of marriage, it is actually quite dangerous. It is like a fire in your living room. If you walk into the house and you hear someone say, there's a fire in your living room, that is a dangerous thing. That's what sex is outside of marriage. But that fire in your living room actually is not altogether dangerous if it's in your living room fireplace. Actually, when it's in your fireplace, it can be enjoyed. It can keep you warm. You can cook a meal on that fire. You can gather around that fire because the fire is in its proper context. The same is true of sexual intimacy. In the marriage covenant, it is in its proper context and it can be enjoyed with God's blessing. But outside of it, God's marriage context, outside of the covenant, it could burn your life down. So a God is teaching here that marriage is a covenant. It's not a post-it note. It is super glue. But that's the first thing. The second thing we hear is that it is a marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. Marriage is meant between a man and a woman according to God's teaching. Here Paul just states it and assumes that it's to be understood and believed, but it's what the Bible teaches from the very first marriage in Genesis 2 between Adam and Eve. God designed marriage between, between, to be between one man and one woman. And God holds the copyright on his design, church. He's the one who gets to determine it, to design it, and therefore define it. Our world and society tries to redefine and redesign what the designer has already made. You and I have heard those remakes, and I've shared this illustration, but it's worth repeating. You know that favorite song you have in it? Whenever you hear a remake of that favorite song, typically, it's like, nah, it's not as good as the original. It's not as good as what first came out. And it can't be because it's not the original. Or when you buy something that's counterfeit, don't expect it to have the same quality as something that's authentic. Counterfeits are just that. They're counterfeits. They look like what's real, but they really are not. God says he's defined marriage. He holds the copyright. He designed it. He defines it. And anything outside of that is a counterfeit. 
And so no matter what others might say, no matter what our culture might say, we don't get the right to redesign what the designer has already made. God has done it. And so Paul teaches that. Thirdly, we see about marriage, that marriage, the marriage covenant is exclusive. Paul says that a husband and wife are together and are not to go outside of that marriage covenant. Marriage is meant to be just between the husband and wife, enjoyed for a lifetime. Open marriages are not marriages. The fourth thing we learn is that marriage, the marriage covenant is also meant to be permanent. So it's not just a covenant between a man and a woman that's exclusive, but it's meant to last until death. That's the whole point of Paul's illustration. He says outside of that, a relationship outside of death could result in adultery. So the marriage covenant is meant to be permanent. That law is only to be broken when one of the spouses dies. Now, I will say this, because Paul doesn't address it here, because it's not the point of his, of, of his message here. But the Bible does speak of the realities of divorce. And I told this to the first service, and I know it's true of us even here in the second service, that many of us have been affected either directly or indirectly by divorce. Whether it's something that you yourself have gone through or something you've experienced in your household. And there are grounds for divorce that the Bible teaches, namely uh, unfaithfulness and abandonment. And these, no doubt, are uh, heavy and difficult circumstances. And they have uh, required discussions around them. So they're not just these blanket things. So there are grounds for divorce, but even Jesus said those are existing because of the sinfulness of our human hearts. But those things don't also, they don't require divorce either. And so marriage is meant to be permanent, which means they are meant to be, it's meant to be worked through even in the face of adversity. Well, the fifth thing Paul says, like to that, is that marriage is meant to be persevering. So if it is to last until death, which means that it's supposed to go through even the most difficult of times. I want to say this to you who are married today. Your marriage may be struggling. But I want to remind you what God wants to remind you, and that's that you made a covenant. And that God wants to, by the power of his spirit, give you the strength to persevere. That he wants you to know that he is rooting for you in your corner, cheering you on, offering you hope. If you're here today and even hearing these words, you think about your own past experiences, maybe a past divorce, I want you to know that we're going to soon get to verses 4, 5, and 6. And in those verses, there is grace. In those verses, there is new life. There is forgiveness. And those verses are offered to you. No matter what the circumstances were, God wants to bring you new life. Paul teaches here on marriage things that might have been assumed in the first century that are not assumed in our day and age. But here's what he's ultimately pressing home here, going back to our discussion on the law. Just as the law only has you bound so long as you are alive, the same way is true with marriage, that marriages last until death does the couple part. But there's a second part of this illustration that Paul drives home. He says, once a spouse dies, the surviving spouse is now freed 
to unite to another. This is what he wants us to understand. See, the law of God is a heavy law. And for us who want to live underneath it, it is a burden that we cannot carry on our own. But what Paul teaches us here is that we can find freedom from the law when we die. And you're saying, this is still not good news for me. Because now death has to occur. But the good news is in verse 4, that death has actually already occurred for you. And it was happened in Jesus. Verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. What Paul is teaching here is that when Jesus died, you died. So that just as Jesus lives, you can live. So when he says the law only has jurisdiction over you so long as you live, in order to break free from that, you got to die. He also says Jesus died for you so that you can be united with him. And now, watch this now, the law no longer has slavery and bondage over you. There's at least two or three who heard me here. Church, this is why we live. Because no longer are we enslaved under the yoke of commands, but we are freed under the grace of Jesus. He died, you died by faith. When he lives, you live by faith. This is what he has done. But this is where people who are on the extreme of license come when it comes to law. Like, that's great news. Jesus died to the law, died so I could die to the law. Now I can do whatever I want. And God's like, that's not the way it works. Because my grace will change you. And as I change you, yes, my laws remain. God didn't void his laws. He didn't abolish his laws, but Jesus fulfilled the laws so that now God's laws and commands are things that we get to do, we want to obey because we have been loved by God. It's like, God, I love you so much that I want to obey your commands. I obey not to get your approval. I obey because I have been approved by Jesus. I gain not to earn your love. I I obey not to learn your love, but I obey because I am loved. This is what Paul is teaching here, and that's what frees you from that yoke of legalism. That salt buildup around your ankles does not need to hold you down. Jesus has freed you from it. This is why Paul says that now you can bear fruit for God. You live for him. You live for his praise. You live for his glory. You live because you love him. Paul writes in verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law, and they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Our old self was a slave, is what he's saying. And he's saying the law, as I mentioned earlier, all it did was arouse our sinful nature. It provoked us. We saw the standard, we saw the commands, and we said, how can I break it? 
the law was like a stone thrown at a sleeping bear, awaking our sinful natures. So under the law then now, we, we feel that yoke, but when we're freed from Jesus, we can live for his glory. No longer a slave, no longer aroused in those ways to disobey. In fact, he says in verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the flesh. We've been released from the law. You were just not furloughed from the law, church. Your hours were not just restructured around the law. You were not just on vacation from the law. He says you were released from the law. You were let go from the law. And when did this happen, he says in verse 6? He says, but now, not later. It's not like, you know what, in a couple weeks, let Jesus free you from it. But now you have been saved from the bondage of the law. You have been released from it. And you can live by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what it does for us now. You see, where the law restricts us with chains, grace catapults us with love. Where the law holds us down, God now frees us. When God commands us to pray, the law tells us we have to do it in order to be a good Christian. The law says, don't mess that up because God won't be happy with you. But grace says, catapulting us with love, that I pray because I get to commune with the God of eternity. I pray because I get to hear from the God who spoke the world into existence. We pray because we get to talk to the King of heaven who is all-powerful and all-knowing. We pray because the same God who hears us is the God who heard Hannah when she prayed in 1 Samuel 1. It's the God who heard Jonah's prayer from the fish. It's the God who heard the disciples' prayer in the midst of the storm. It's the God who hears you. So we pray because we get to pray. That's what grace does. When God commands us to love our neighbor, the law says you better love your neighbor or else God will be angry with you and might cancel you out. And grace says you get to love your neighbor Because you've been loved by God. And now you show the same love by which you were loved. You have marinated in God's love. You've been lathered in God's love. You've been engulfed by God's love. And through his grace, now you return it to others. That's what grace does. God commands us to pursue holiness. And the law changes up, saying if you don't, you will be condemned. When you sin, God's no longer happy with you. It's that condemnation after you have sinned, whether it be with lust or gossip or greed or jealousy or you name it, that causes you to hide in your bedroom in shame and guilt. That's what the law does. That's not grace, church. What grace says is that you can be forgiven, not once or twice, but 70 times, seven times, seven times infinity. Because Jesus has covered you with his perfection. 
He has forgiven you for your sins. Grace now catapults you to live in obedience because the Holy Spirit is doing just that, causing you to become holy in your life. When God commands us to meditate on the Bible, on his word, the law tells us to do so in order to feel loved because if we don't, we won't be loved. And grace says we do so because God's promises are there and his promises are for us. When God commands us to live for his glory, the law tells us to be puffed up about all that we do that's good. We take so much pride in how great we are. We love the persona we have. That's what the law does. It causes us to become arrogant when we feel like we've kept it. But grace says, man, I know I'm nothing. But the God who saved me is the one who I want to declare his glory. There is a stark contrast between living under the yoke of the law that restricts and chains and living under the grace of God that catapults us by his love. If you came in today as a legalist, I pray that that salt around your ankle would be broken down and you would know what it means to be free. Where the law brings death, Jesus brings life. Where the law brings guilt, Jesus brings grace. And where the law restricts, grace catapults. This is what I need you to do. If you find yourself struggling with legalism, with just trying to always obey to earn God's favor, just know that's, that's a bill you can't pay. And you weren't meant to pay because Jesus already paid that for you. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to take the law out to lunch. I need you to take the law out to lunch, and you got to have a defining the relationship moment with the law. you got to do a DTR. And you got to look the law in the eye and say, hey, the problem's not you, it's me. You're too costly for me. And I'm broke. But the Bible teaches that a broken and contrite spirit, oh Lord, you won't despise. And once you break up with the law, you can go on singing, since you've been gone, I can breathe for the first time. I'm so moving on. Yeah, yeah, since you've been gone. You tell the law, you're gone. I've got a new person I'm with here. I have died to the one to belong to another. And I belong to Jesus who went to the cross for my sins. I belong to Jesus who died for all my sins and my failures. And now his perfection is declared unto me based on nothing I could do, but simply based on his love and his compassion. And so now I am approved by God, but not based on me, but based on Jesus. That's who I live for now. Where the law restricts with chains, grace has catapulted me with love. Church, I hope and pray this is doctrine that will get you dancing. I hope and pray that you can walk today with a new kind of step in you. That those of you who've been consumed by legalism, whether it be in church culture or legalism of your own pride, that you would know that that's not what God wants for you. But he doesn't want you to go out living any kind of way because his grace changes you. And as you walk, you can walk with that grace. When you fail, you repent. And you get back up and you say, God, thank you. 
Your mercies are new today, every morning. That's what it means to be free. So let's walk in it, church family, and cast off those salt shackles around our ankles. Let's pray. God, I suspect that there are some here today who, like me, have found themselves trying so hard to earn your love. Like we know, God, that like we can't earn it, but there's still an impulse in us that still tries to do it. Which means that when we feel like we're doing good, we feel so great, and when we feel like we mess up, we feel so condemned and judged. And what happens is, God, we have failed to see ourselves through the lens of the gospel. That even in our victories, we fail to see them as expressions of your grace that we can't take credit for. And we fail to see our failures as opportunities for your grace to shower us with your forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to see the proper place of your commands. Help us to see them as scripture says. Your commandments are not burdensome. They are life-giving when we understand our identity is found in Jesus. God, I want to lift up any who are watching online or here in person. Maybe for the first time, your grace has made sense to them. Maybe they thought they had put their faith in Jesus, but really what they've done is put their faith in how hard they worked and in their efforts and threw Jesus into the equation. I pray that today you would free them from this, Lord, that there will be genuine faith and repentance that understands your grace and your freedom, Lord. Let us walk in it, Lord. For the one who says, I've just been trying so hard and I feel like I'm just so stuck. God, may they cry out to you today and unstick them, Lord, by them seeing the cross and the resurrection. Oh, Lord, we praise you. We look to you. We fall to our knees. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise to our feet, church. shed blood can make us whole again and we know nothing else can do that but you so we go out this week oh God we pray for your strength and your grace and your help in everything we do in Jesus name amen before you're dismissed I just want to remind you to grab those Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes uh, as you exit it's an opportunity to take part in what God is doing globally and also leave as someone who is free today and walk in that freedom this week. Isaiah 41 10 says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand.
God bless you, church family. Uh, Let's hang out on the front lawn. We'll see you out there in just a few moments.